As you're being seated, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We will be covering Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 this morning. Once upon a time, a woman took her husband to the doctor. He was really sick. And they got to the doctor and said, Doctor, my husband, he's, he's not doing well. Can you help him? The doctor did his exam and thoroughly looked the man over. Afterwards, he said, you know, your, your husband is sick. He's, he's dying. He's got a fatal disease that has been brought on by stress. Husband didn't hear too well, so he turned to his wife and he said, what did the doctor say? And she said, you're really sick. The doctor turned to her again. He said, you know, he is really sick and, and he probably will die, but there is something you could do to avert this consequence. If you can begin to remove all of the stress from his life, your husband probably will recover. He'll probably get well. I suggest that you begin uh, to make him breakfast every morning, bring it to him in bed. And bring him the paper, but cut out all of the bad stories. Just bring him the comics and the sports, good things. And don't tell him about all your problems. And if you get into conflict, you should just give in and let him be right all of the time. Again, the husband didn't hear very well and turned to his wife and said, well, what, what did he say? His wife looked back at her husband and she said, doctor says you're going to die. <laughs> we all die. It happens to everybody. But why? Just because it's the normal human experience, we think it's something natural, when in fact, the Bible says it is not. Why is it that everyone is born under a sentence of condemnation and eventually experiences death? And how is it that God can justify or declare righteous all people? How does that work? In other words, how do chapters 1 through 4 theologically take place? Paul, in chapter 5, is going to explain the theological concept of a representation. That the act of one or the act of a group can count on behalf of someone else. Now, uh, if you are an Aggie, uh, you can understand this experience very well. This is my son and his buddy Grayson. Yesterday, they, they got to experience victory. Right? A great victory. A big victory. Uh, they even got to go down on the field and they got a high-five players as they went through. Uh, they didn't uh, play actually, yesterday. They didn't, they didn't uh, actually touch the ball, but they experienced victory. And if you're an Aggie, I'm an Aggie, uh, we experienced victory, didn't we? Right? Even if we didn't play, we experienced victory because we are the 12th man, right? And so the players were out there representing themselves, but they were also representing us. They experienced a victory, and we experienced a victory. When the Aggies score, we score. That's right. It's a great tradition. The Aggies get a victory, we get a victory. That's representation. What was done by a few counts for the many. That is the principle in Aggie speak that Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 5. Representation. What he's saying is the act of a one that is Adam. The act of that one. And his sin, because he was our representative, brought sin and death and condemnation to all. But the act of a better representative, Jesus Christ, brought justification and life and hope to all who believe. If you think about it, all of humanity at this very moment can be placed in one of two categories. All of humanity before God stand in one of two categories, either in Adam and consequently dead or in Christ and alive. I want you to read with me beginning in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, dot, dot. And then Paul, as often happens with Paul, he gets another idea that just pops into his mind and he goes, and he's got to take it for a while. And what he's going to do is he's going to come back in verse 18 and complete the thought that he began in verse 12. But he writes something in verse 12 that he feels like he needs to explain. And that is, why is sin and consequently death the universal experience of mankind. And what he's going to say is that there's a threefold progression here, if you'll notice. Sin entered into the world through Adam, and death through sin, and then death spread to all men. So the first stage is Adam brought in sin. And if we are in Adam, and all of us are born into Adam, we are dead. Because Adam brought sin into the world. And when he talks about Adam's sin, he's not talking about all of Adam's sins, because certainly Adam sinned more than once. But he's talking about one particular sin. Look in verse 18, where he picks up the argument again. He makes it a little more clear. He says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. He's talking about that one sin where God said to Adam, Adam, see that tree, that one right there. Do I have your attention? Don't eat that tree. Don't eat anything from the fruit of that tree. Because if you do, you will die. And Adam ate and he died. Okay, it was that one transgression. That's what Paul is talking about here. Not multiple sins, but that one. Adam brought in sin, and as a result, sin brought in death. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Keep your place here in Romans 5, because we'll be back there in just a moment. But turn to Genesis chapter 2. And let's think for a moment about Adam's experience. It says, chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. You notice in verse 16 where he says you may freely eat. Uh, In Hebrew that is you may eat, eat. In verse 17, you will surely die. That is you will die, die. When they wanted to express an emphasis on something in the Hebrew language, they repeated it. So eat freely is eat, eat, enjoy. But if you eat from that tree, you will die, die. It's going to happen. You will die, surely. Now, the moment that Adam ate of that fruit, did he die physically? No, he didn't. He didn't just keel over right there. But the process of physical death began. Degeneration began for him. And even more significantly, in some respects, the process of living separated from God or a lifetime experience of death began at that very moment. Even before God came and confronted him, Adam began to experience separation, which is the essence of death. Isaiah 59 verse 2 illustrates that. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is what death is. Death is separation. So the moment that Adam sinned, he became separated from Eve. There was shame and there was guilt. And there was a transference of guilt and there was accusation. They were separated from one another. 
They were separated from fellowship with God and openness and intimacy. They became separated from the garden and the land began to be cursed and it was frustrating for them. And they were separated from other human beings. Later, there was conflict, eventually death and war. There was always separation or alienation. And that characterized all of Adam's experience on this earth. Adam died. And then, of course, physically he died later. So this is the progression. Adam brought sin, sin brought death, and then Paul says death spread to everyone. And what does he mean that death spread to everyone? Well, obviously, uh, that includes physical death. I want you to turn to chapter 5 of Genesis. Again, sometimes when Bible writers want to emphasize something, they just repeat it over and over and over again. Just so, you know, because we're a little slow sometimes here. I want you you to get the point, okay? So verse 5, it says... All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and guess what? He died. Verse 17, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 24, Enoch Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. He's an exception. If God hadn't taken him out, what would have happened to Enoch? He would have died. That's right. Verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Verse 31, all the days of Lamech were 775 years, and he died. What's the point of chapter 5? Everybody dies. Okay? Everyone dies. Universal experience. So certainly Paul is talking about physical death. But even worse than that is the sentence of condemnation that rests upon each and every person from the moment that we are born. Turn back to chapter 5 of Romans and verse 18. Romans chapter 5 verse 18, Paul writes, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all mankind. The word condemnation means uh, the sentence or the verdict, but also the punishment. And the punishment is this, it is separation. It is separation. And unless that verdict is overturned, the sentence will remain upon a person their entire life, and then when they die, they will experience separation that lasts forever. That is what hell is. Okay, that is what hell is. Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. A destruction that goes on forever, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We were designed to be in the presence of the Lord and reflecting the glory of his power. But if the verdict of condemnation is not overturned, we will be forever separated. The Evangelical Theological Society just had their meetings this last week. That's the big group of evangelicals in America from every different denomination. And the subject was this, is hell real? Is hell real? Because there are a lot of Christian writers that are saying, no, it's not real. Uh, People who don't believe will just be annihilated or God will eventually come back in the end and he'll just bring everybody in. And the overwhelming voice of the evangelical community that submits itself to the word of God is this. There is a real heaven. It's the presence of God and there is a real hell and it's separation from the presence of God. Unless the verdict is overturned 
for you in Christ. So the death that he is talking about is physical death. It is that sentence of condemnation. But then third, it is that we are made sinners. The reason that there is a sentence of death upon us is because our nature was changed by Adam's sin. Look at verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And what Paul is expressing there is that Adam's one sin changed our nature. We don't, we don't become sinners when we start sinning. We sin because we are sinners. You see the distinction? Uh, certainly, people start sinning very quickly, very early on in life, probably before the age of one. The, the, the individual personal sins start. But the reason those things start is because in Adam we were made sinners. Okay? Our relationship to Adam changed our life. That is, um, before the fall... Adam's nature was that he was innocent. He was holy, but his holiness had not yet been tested. He was innocent in this respect. He was without sin. He was free to choose good or evil. His will was still good and functioning. And he was capable of good. He was capable of living in dependence upon God and doing things that pleased God. After his sin, Adam became guilty, enslaved to sin, and incapable of doing good. And because we are in Adam, we are born into that condition, the latter. We are made sinners, and because we are sinners, therefore we commit personal sins. In other words, our worst problem is not that we commit personal sins. Our worst problem is that our fundamental nature is that of sinner. Okay? As a result, we experience a lifetime of separation, okay? a lifetime of death. All our human experience is one not of perfect fellowship with God. This is what uh, doctrinally is called total depravity. Let me describe it for you. It means that to some degree, all of your relationships will be alienated. You may have some good times, but no relationship is going to work perfectly well. Adam and Eve experienced conflict with one another, conflict with their children, conflict with the people around them eventually who came from them. There was alienation. Alienation with people, alienation with God. The intellect becomes darkened. Because of Adam's sin. That is, none of us can reason perfectly well, no matter how intelligent you are, and certainly not on moral issues. You will often reason yourself to the wrong conclusion. Why? Because the intellect has been darkened. Emotions are degraded. We don't feel things appropriately because we don't perceive our world accurately. So we feel things wrongly, not in accordance with truth. The conscience is desensitized. That is, sometimes we want to call evil things good. And we want to rationalize behavior. Our spiritual perception is dulled. We don't see God at work and say, yes, that is God and that is of the devil. We don't perceive things properly. It doesn't mean that we are absolutely as bad as we possibly could be. It just means we can't trust ourselves. Because every component of personality has been affected as well as our body. The body is degenerating. The body is getting worse and worse and worse. I I had my annual appointment with my doctor, uh, that I keep it every three years. And I went in, and the, uh, the conclusion of the exam was this. You're getting older, Brian. I'm like, yeah, you know, I have this ache. It hurts here. He goes, yeah. What else? <laughs> Nothing we can do about that, right? You're just, you're, yeah, you ache more. 20-year-olds, guess what? Enjoy it, right? You're, you're at the peak, and you know what that means? I've told you before. You know what the peak means if you're at the peak? 
It's all downhill, right? (laughs) The body wears out. Every component of your person has been negatively affected by sin. And so you will experience a lifetime of alienation, frustration. It's death. Okay, that's spiritual death. And it will eventually end in physical death. And if the verdict is not overturned and you remain in Adam, it'll be eternal death. Okay, eternal separation. How in the world did this happen to us? That's what Paul is trying to explain in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And he's referring to one man and one sin. That one man is Adam. His name means man. Okay? The name Adam means man or mankind. Not male, but mankind. God chose Adam to be our representative. And so what Adam did, he did on our behalf. He was our representative. Paul states it really clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. He says, in Adam, all die. Notice how he says it in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man and his one sin, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you might think, oh, he's talking about my personal sins. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying all die in Adam and all die in Adam's sin. And then in verses 13 and 14, he explains. That's why he takes this digression. Because we might think he's talking about my personal sins. No, he's talking about Adam's sin. I'm dead and dying because of Adam's sin. All sinned in Adam. Now, verses 13 and 14, let's read those together. Paul writes, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That is, Adam is a type. He's the first Adam. Jesus is a type, is the antitype. He's the second Adam. One representative Adam plunged us into ruin and destruction. One representative Christ brought life and justification. How did it work? Now, I I confess Uh, Paul was, Paul is a lot smarter than I am. Uh, Let me see if I can try to explain his argument because it's kind of complicated in verses 13 and 14. He says, until the law, sin was in the world. Okay, so from the moment that the gates of Eden were closed until hundreds of years later that God gave the law to Moses, people were sinning, right? There was sin. Uh, Adam and Eve committed other sins. Their children committed sin. Everybody did. Everybody's sinning. Okay, sin all around. Plain for everybody. Okay. Until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. What he means is uh, sin isn't clearly marked out until you have law. Law makes sin obvious. And Paul is going to develop that concept in chapter 7. Law makes sin obvious. So uh, if you walk up on a fence line and it says, trespassers will be shot right? And you cross over the fence and you get shot. Got it, right? It was really clear. Here's the boundary. And this is what it means to trespass. That's the word that he uses in verse 14. The offense of Adam is a boundary that was crossed over and a consequence. When there's a law, that's really clear. Well, Adam committed an offense or a trespass. There was one law given to Adam. What was it? Don't eat that tree. 
but don't eat the fruit of that tree. You eat the fruit of that tree, you will be shot. <laughs> you will die, right? It's going to happen to you. He committed that sin. He's thrown out of the garden. Gates are closed. Cherubim are there. No one else can ever commit that sin again, can they? No, because no one else can get in and take of that fruit. But people keep dying. Everybody is dying. Even though they can't commit that sin that had the consequence of death. Matter of fact, there's only one law. uh, When the garden is closed before the law, there's one law given, as far as we know, that has the death penalty attached, and it's murder. If a person murders, uh, they get the death penalty. And most people didn't murder, but everybody died. Why is that? Because they weren't being held accountable to to the death penalty for their own personal sins, but for Adam's sin. But for Adam's sin. And not Adam's sins, but Adam's sin. Okay? We are in the boat with Adam. A few years ago, I went to Colorado. Tristy and I went. It's before we had kids, and we did a, a river rafting trip. I remember we, we, uh, as we walked up to the bank, there were 10, 12 boats sitting out there, and we got to choose our guide. And so we're looking around like, oh, who's, who's a good guide here? Who's going to be good? We saw this young guy, really young, strong guy, and you know, a couple of the other guys said, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. You know, go, go get in his boat. So we go over, and we climb in his boat. We get into the river, and we start floating down the river, and we're asking questions because we're social people, right? And we're getting to know him and making friends, and pretty soon we discover, yeah, so how long have you been guiding? Yeah, about a week and a half. Okay, bad choice. Okay. So we're going down the river. You know, going to hit the first rapids. He decides to go directly up and over that big boulder and boom, down into a hole. And some of us stayed in the boat and some of us didn't. We all shared an experience, though, that was quite terrifying. Because we were in his boat. We are in the boat with Adam because God chose him as the representative for all of humanity. Maybe you say to yourself, man, that just doesn't seem fair. Brian, at least, you know, you got to pick your river guide. We didn't get to pick Adam. It's kind of like living in a representative democracy, right? We, we elect officials and they're supposed to do our will. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And sometimes we see a guy or a lady and she's not doing our will. And we say, well, we didn't vote for that person. It's not fair. It's not fair. And we didn't choose Adam. That just doesn't seem fair. How do we respond to that? There's a theologian. His name is Wolfgang Pannenberg, um, which means he must be pretty smart. And this is what he said. So it is impossible for me to be held jointly, uh, jointly responsible as though I were a joint cause for an act that another did many generations ago in a situation radically different from mine. He says, I don't buy it. I don't think that I should be held responsible for Adam's sin. How do we respond? My first response is, yeah. <laughs> But there are many things in our lives that we didn't choose, but still affect us. You did not get to choose your parents. You didn't get to choose whether you're tall or short. You have dark hair, blonde hair, no hair. You didn't get to choose that. Good eyesight, bad eyesight, good hearing, bad hearing. Really great intelligence, average intelligence. You didn't get to pick any of those things. Yet, here we are. Here we are. Who would you have chosen? 
Instead of Adam, who, who would you have picked? Uh, I hope that you would not have picked me. I, I can promise you I would have let you down a lot quicker than Adam. Would you have picked yourself? Would you, would you have picked yourself instead of Adam? I promise you, Adam was our best bet. Okay? Adam, was, Adam was our best hope. Adam was uh, perfect intellectually and perfect physically, and he had no flesh constantly whispering in his ear, don't obey God. He was perfect in every respect, and Adam fell. He failed. And every time each of us sin, we're just confirming that in the same situation that Adam had been, we would have failed. We would have failed. See, sometimes my kids come to me, and they've been in a fight, been in an argument, and they say, Daddy, she started it. Now, Daddy, he started it. And I say, I don't care, because you finished it. Doesn't matter. You participated. You got in on it. I can imagine Adam saying to God, God, she started it. She took the first bite. And God says, I don't care. You finished it. You ate all the way through the core. I can't even find the stem, brother. You ate. You ate too, man. And I chose you to be responsible for this garden and for your wife. And you failed. See, we're not plunged into this because of Eve's sin. Eve was deceived. Adam made a willful choice. He spoke directly to God. God gave him the prohibition, and he directly chose to disobey. And as a result, we are plunged into ruin and death. And you know, sometimes I think about it, I go, it just doesn't seem fair. But nor is it fair that Jesus would be our representative, that he, an innocent party, would take on all of our sin and guilt. That's not fair. But we don't complain about that do we? But because Adam sinned as our representative and brought death into our experience, therefore Jesus, one man, can die for us and be our representative. And Jesus did not have to die for each and every one of us over and over and over again. He could make one perfect act of righteous obedience for all sins, for all people, for all time. And those who believe can enter into that and be moved out of Adam and into Christ. Okay, That's the second half of what he develops in Romans chapter 5. Read with me chapter 5 and verse 15. Paul says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous." The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the the second representative, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, 
he faced a test as well, a test of obedience. God said, go to the cross. And on that cross, you will suffer and you will bear the sins of many. You who has never sinned, you will experience death. That is, you will experience separation. There will be a a rupture in the fabric of the Godhead. Alienation between father and son that is inexplicable. Suffering and pain that cannot even be described. Son of God, go to the cross. Was that a difficult decision for Jesus? Oh yeah, sweat came down like drops of blood. Was he conflicted? Yes. Father, if you can cause this cup to pass from me, can you reconcile people? Can you, can you solve the problem of alienation any other way than me going to the cross? That's what I want. But not my will, but yours be done. Adam said, no, God, my will be done. Jesus said, your will be done. And in one act of faithful obedience, he removed the penalty of sin and the consequence of death for all people for all time. So notice the comparison that Paul makes here. Verse 16, from Adam, we got judgment and condemnation, but from Jesus, a free gift and the declaration of righteousness. Verse 17, from Adam, we got transgression and and the reign of death, from Jesus' grace and the reign of life. Verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase and be obvious, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It says where sin abounded and became obvious, grace superabounded, Paul says. It's as if you come to me and you've just run a mile. You say, Brian, I'm really thirsty. I say, you know what? I can handle that. Let's go out to the curb. And we walk out to the curb and I've got my big fireman's wrench and I open up the fire hydrant. Have a drink. You're thirsty. I can deal with that. Jesus says, sin abounded. Oh, there was so much sin. And then Jesus super abounded and a flood of grace came over mankind. But notice the distinction. We were placed into Adam involuntarily. God placed us in Adam. He was our representative. But we have to choose to become placed in Christ by faith. Verse 17, Paul says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Right now, if you have never said to God, I believe that Christ died for my sins, then you are in Adam and the sentence of condemnation rests upon you. And you can make scream your whole life and say, that's not fair. But it is. It's true. But you can be moved out of Adam into Christ. You can change representatives simply by saying, God, I believe, I, I trust That faithful work of Christ was adequate. It It was for me and it was enough to satisfy the penalty of sin and the consequence of death. I believe the moment that you believe God takes you out of Adam, he puts you into Christ and you are secure forever. And in chapter six, he's going to develop all of the blessings of being united with Christ. And I would encourage you, if you have never made that decision, to go before God and say, I believe this morning that you would do that. You can express that through prayer. Prayer is just conversation with God. You don't even have to bow your head or close your eyes or get on your knees. Just speak in your heart and your mind and say, God, I believe that Christ died for me. Thank you 
for that wonderful gift, I accept. And I would encourage you, if you've never accepted that gift today, let today be that day to move out of death and into life. If you have accepted that gift, I have an application for you. During Thanksgiving break through Christmas, I'm going to give you a long period of time. I want you to memorize Romans chapter 6. Okay? It's not that long a chapter. 30-something verses? Go like that. Okay? But you've got a long period of time. I want you to memorize Romans chapter 6. And I want you to meditate upon the blessings of being united with Christ. Take some notes. Write them down. We'll be starting chapter 6 this fall, but then we're going to be developing it early in the spring. And I want you to have some background. Memorize Romans chapter 6 and begin to think through. What are the blessings, the transformation that has come because I'm now united with Christ rather than being united with Adam? This morning, I'd like for you to begin that meditation as we celebrate communion together. Uh, If I could have the the men come forward in service. Uh, As they're serving us, I want you to take a few moments. And just meditate upon the the depth of the sacrifice of Christ. That in the face of impending suffering, he said yes to God, thy will be done. I want you to just think for a few moments about the depth of that sacrifice and begin to give thanks for the body and blood of Christ. Uh, We're going to wait till we're all served. Because as body of Christ, we're not only united to Christ, we're also united to one another. So once we're all served, we'll take the bread and the cup together. Paul wrote, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He said, This bread is my body. It's broken for you. I want you to take it and be united with me. Let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to take the cup and be united with me. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed for us. When we take it, when we have believed in Jesus, his suffering, his death counts for us. I thank you, Father, that he did not Uh, draw back in fear but he moved forward in faithfulness to make a sacrifice that would count for each and every one of us all of our sins for all of time Father we thank you this morning for the sacrifice of Christ let's pray Father, we thank you for Jesus who redeemed us, who paid the price for our sins so we would not have to pay it for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for Jesus who reconciled us to you, removed the separation and the alienation. We thank you for Jesus who declared us righteous so that we could be in right relationship with you forever. We thank you for Jesus who is our hope that forever we will stand glorified, fulfilling the purpose for which you made us to be in your presence and to be honoring to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his faithful act of going to the cross on our behalf to remove the guilt that we experienced under Adam. 
And I pray, Father, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, that during these ho- this holiday season, you would you just break our hearts for our friends and family who don't know Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would drive us to our knees uh, as we beseech you to move in their lives and to move them out of Adam and into Christ. And I pray, Father, you'd give us opportunities to introduce them to your wonderful son, our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving season.